Well, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 20, the book of Acts. Uh, We've reached Acts chapter 20 this morning. I'm going to read from verse 17 through to verse 38. We're actually going to look at this passage over two Sunday mornings, the exact same passage. And here's our first uh, run through of it this morning. I want to give a, a very warm welcome to those of our church family who are watching on video or listening at home. One of the great sadnesses for everybody who's here today is that we're not able to be together at the minute. And I know many folks in our church family would love to be here with us and just for various reasons aren't able to gather at the minute. It is such a strange experience having a waiting list for church, isn't it? Signing up and not being free, uh, just simply to come week by week. So those who aren't here, we miss you and we want to welcome you as you watch and listen today. Acts chapter 20 and reading from verse 17. Now from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to, the, came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify you, testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. 
And they accompanied him to the ship. Amen. Goodbyes are painful. You've had painful goodbyes. I've had them. Maybe some of you have just had them recently within your family. The comings and goings of people here for a while moving away again. This description at the end of our passage is beautiful, isn't it? Embracing, weeping, kissing. And we have a single simple thing to look at today. What kind of ministry gives birth to this kind of reaction? What kind of ministry gives birth to this kind of reaction? Why did they love Paul like this? What creates it? I wonder if you noticed as we read, this is a male emotion here. This is men. Real men don't cry, do they? Unless they're on the terraces and their team has won the league, unless they're on the golf course and they've won the Open, or they're in battle, or they are Christians who have lived with a real shepherd who has laid down his life for them. Men feel like this, verses 36 to 38, much weeping. They embraced him, kissed him. Men feel like this when they see another man live among them and teach them the way that Paul does here in verses 18 to 35. There's the key to it, isn't it? There's what we're looking at this morning. There is a type of ministry that grows this kind of reaction among the people who receive it and have it. There is a type of ministry that grows this kind of grief when you lose it. So what is it? What does it do? This is the Apostle Paul as one shepherd handing on the baton to another group of shepherds who are going to follow him. And this passage is beautifully rich. So what I want to do do today is just walk us through it, verses 18 to 27. 18 to 27 today, to learn from Paul's example. Next week, verses 18 to 35, to heed Paul's instruction. Today, Paul's example. Next week, Paul's instructions. Today is Paul getting out the photo album, if you like. He's flicking through the Instagram story of his time with him. Do you remember this? He's saying, do you remember that time? Do you remember this moment? Learn from my example. Learn from my example. So three things to see today. Number one, learn from the way Paul lived. Number two, look at the things Paul did. Number three, embrace the future Paul knew. Learn from the way he lived. Look at what he did. Embrace the future that he knew. Let me say this as we begin to look at it. Church life is a team sport. Church life is a team sport. The Christian faith is a team sport. We are all involved in this. See, think about it. It would be lovely, wouldn't it? Think of the delight, the delicious delight it would be sometime for you at work to be able to sit in on your boss's evaluation. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to hear? How deliciously satisfying to hear your boss being told all the things you know he should be doing. It's a little bit like that here. A little bit. Your church elders here being told how to do the job. Elders of churches need to accept this. Here we are being given an example to follow. 
verses 18 to 27. Here we're being given instructions to heed, verses 28 to 35. And it is public. Everybody knows what we're meant to be doing. But the point is, we are all involved in this. Did you know that the only thing, the only thing that elders are ever asked to do that other Christian believers are not asked to do is to be able to teach. It's the only thing elders are asked to do that every Christian is not asked to do. Everything else we're all involved in. And more than this, many of us here today, many as I look out on uh, this part of our congregation together, many of you here are leaders in some capacity. Sunday school leaders, truth group leaders, student supper leaders, house group leaders. Some of our younger men here today listening, morning and evening, are men interested in ministry. The next Struan or Will Allen or Ben Trainer. Some of you here today will be elders one day in a church family. What do you need to be like? Christian leadership takes its shape from the shape of the Christian life. Christian leadership takes its shape from the shape of the Christian life. In other words, what all of us have to be, elders have to be too, just in an exemplary way, in a way that leads. You see, the elder is not to a football team what a chairman of a club is to a football team. The elder is not like the chairman. Okay, Think think of the great surprise. If on match day, the chairman put on his boots and kit and ran onto the pitch, wouldn't it be awful, that tight top over the beer belly? No, if you're the chairman, your job is numbers, money and marketing and employment, making the club work. The job of the pastor or the elder is not the club chairman where you are separate from the team. No, the job of the elder is much more like captain, isn't it? Playing the same game by the same rules on the same pitch with everybody else, but first on the pitch and last off the pitch. So that there's an example to follow. Here here are the three parts of Paul's example. Number one, learn from the way Paul lived. Learn from the way Paul lived. Isn't this a surprise right at the start? Verse 18, when when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day. I think that's a surprise. If you are the apostle, the apostle Paul, a shepherd of God's people, and you're handing the baton on to other elders, wouldn't you expect him to say what we get in verse 20? You yourselves know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Teaching, teaching, teaching. No, you know how I lived among you. Before we get to the teaching, you know how I lived. It's very important to see that, that Christian leadership is not just teaching the Bible to people. Many young folks, particularly young men interested in ministry, think that's what it is, just teaching the Bible. I want to teach the Bible. No, it is living among people to give the Bible to people. See what Paul's saying? There is nothing private about ministry. Every single part of your life is on display. If you are an elder and if you are a minister, 
Your salary is known to a group of people. Where you live is inspected by a property committee once a year. If you are a shepherd, your children are on view. Your marriage is on display. The way you speak to people is being listened to and watched and observed. Your reactions to things are being noted. Now, why? Why does it matter that Paul says, you know how I lived? Because here's the bottom line, friends. It's one that Paul knew. It's one that he understood. And it is one that leaders of churches of gospel growth understand. Here's what it is. The impression that people form of the gospel is itself bound up with the impression they form of the preacher of the gospel. Isn't that true? The impression people form of the gospel is bound up with the impression they have of the preacher of the gospel. It's influenced by the assessment people make of the gospel preacher. The impression people have of the Christian faith comes from the impression they have of the Christian leader. And if people don't know how you live, they don't know whether to follow you or to listen to you. See, I said it last week, didn't I, or the week before, one day my time here will be gone. And the Trinity Church family will be calling a new minister. Think about the day that that comes and people are wondering, who shall we call? Who shall we have? If the only reason you want to call person A or B or C is because of their amazing sermons and because of their brilliant books and because of how well known they are, be very, very careful. For Paul says here, what you want to be asking is, what is their life like? And if you don't know what their life is like, how on earth do you know you want them to be your leader? Now, friends, you need to ask of a Christian leader the kind of things you ask of nobody else in a job interview. Who are you sleeping with? Now, if you go for a job interview as an accountant, a doctor... Uh, whatever else you're doing, and across the table somebody says to you, who are you sleeping with? You are perfectly entitled to say absolutely none of your business. But in ministry, oh, it's so important. What do you like with your money? None of your business you can say in any other job. But look at verse 33. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, what leaders are like with money can make or break a ministry? Are they greedy? Or if they had to, would they be working another job so that they didn't have to stop bringing you the gospel? It matters more than you can ever say. So what is it that needs to be public then? What is it that needs to be on display in the life of the leader? Look at it. Look at it with me. You know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day to the last day. Verse 19, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. Again, what what do you expect him to say? You know how I lived. Verse 19, serving you. I, I was your servant. It's what people want, isn't it? We have wonderful leaders. They are so servant-hearted. And because they're so servant-hearted, people love them. And everything goes well all the time. No, Paul does not say that. I served the Lord first. The Lord first. 
You know, congregations need to know that they have elders and ministers who say to the congregation, I will be your servant, but you will not be my master. You will not be my master. The Lord is my master. If your first concern in leading is pleasing people, then there are important and necessary things that you will find it impossible to do because you don't want to upset people. There are things you just won't say, things you won't do. I am here to serve the Lord, says Paul, says gospel elders. And friends, serving people because you serve the Lord first will always be better for people than serving them only. But it will not always please the people you're serving because you are not putting them first, but God first. Some of you will need to break your love of pleasing people to be the very effective Christian leaders you might otherwise be. But, but now look, look, look how he keeps developing it. Serving the Lord with all humility. See, this attitude of God first, people second, it doesn't ever lead you to denigrate people or to dismiss people. No, you serve people humbly. I am no different from you. I am no better than you. And you do it with tears and trials. Richard Sibbs said, Shall man be proud after God has been humble? Shall man be proud after God has been humble? The Lord who we serve in verse 19, the Lord of glory who stooped down to the dust. Shall a Christian leader be proud when that's who they're serving? Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials. Tears and trials. Friends, shepherds of gospel care have tears and trials. Choose leaders who weep and who go through trials. We, we tend to think tears should have nothing to do with church, don't we? We don't cry in church. It's not why we're here. We think Tears shouldn't have anything to do with leading. We don't want Nicholas Sturgeon to stand up weeping at the podium or Boris Johnson. No, we want strength. We want clarity. We want vision. We want leadership. Carry the nation on your shoulders. But Trinity Church, friends, is not an organization. We're not a business. We're not a commodity. It is a family and if there is a professional detachment from the sheep, it is bizarre, strange. It says, out of place from being detached from your own family, their own t- struggles and sorrows. If you ever move on, here's what this means. If you ever move on from Trinity one day, I hope you don't, but people do, don't they? Students, people come and go, jobs change. You move on, you move to a new city. You're thinking of choosing a new church. Here's your coffee conversation with the new pastor that you're thinking of joining this church over coffee. This will take them completely by surprise and it is completely the right thing to ask them over coffee. I'm thinking of joining your church. Tell me about your tears and your trials. I've never had that. I've had plenty of people want to meet for coffee. Tell me about your worship style. Tell me about your leadership style. Tell me about your vision for the future. Never had somebody say, what makes you weep in ministry? What suffering have you known? 
Shepherds of gospel care live a certain way. They serve one person before they serve many people. They serve humbly. They serve often sorrowfully. And secondly, leaders like this do certain things. Number two, they do certain things. Look at the things Paul did. Look at the things Paul did. There are different verbs here for one job, one thing. Christian leaders, Sunday school leaders, student supper leaders, truth leaders, house group leaders, please, all of you, all of us, mums, when you sit with an open Bible over coffee, Bible and breakfast guys who meet on Zoom, different verbs for one job. It is not to grow a crowd. It is not to be cool. It is not to be funny. Here's the verbs, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the verbs declaring, teaching, testifying. Christian leadership is first and foremost at its core and at its root open Bible leadership. It is declarative ministry. Verse 27, the whole counsel of God. A whole Bible makes a whole Christian. And shepherds have that as their main task. And friends, because so many of you have done this or you're doing it, so many of you are doing this as I look around the room, leading a Bible study, reading the Bible one-to-one with someone, because you do this, you know this is tough. It's hard, isn't it? The single hardest thing I have to do in my work, the single hardest thing, this never changes, it is this right now. Teaching, preaching, declaring, testifying, trying to think yourself clear means sweating yourself clear, studying yourself clear, praying yourself full, teaching yourself empty. It is hard. Look what Paul says in verse 20. Isn't this interesting? I did not shrink from declaring what was profitable. Verse 27, he uses the same phrase again. I did not shrink from it. It's interesting. Paul is going to Jerusalem and he knows he's going to suffer there. He's going to experience immense afflictions. I would expect here a Christian leader to be told not to shrink from suffering. It's natural to shrink from suffering. No no one puts their hand in the fire. We, We recoil from it. But the example Paul gives to your Christian leaders is to not shrink from declaring, from teaching, from preaching what is profitable. Because, friends, I do want to shrink from it. Shepherds want to recoil from it. But the shepherds of gospel care are not shrinking shepherds. Men who shrink back from saying what is true and hard to hear, and difficult to explain, and offensive for many to get their heads around. Oh, everything around us, friends, wants to make us shrink back from declaring, from testifying. The hours are long, and the work is difficult, and the results are so disappointing, and the reaction is so mixed, and so many are often offended. Keep your opinions on transgender to yourself, please. Any more of that teaching on sexuality and the police will be at your door. Those sermons are too long. 
they're too short. Those sermons are too intellectual. They're not intellectual enough. You're not stretching us enough. Too doctrinal. Not enough doctrine. Not interesting enough. Not enough illustrations. Too many illustrations. Oh, the regular pressure on the teaching ministry of a church. It is enough to make you want to shrink back from it. Shrink back. No, friends, here in our church family, and wherever you go from here, if ever you go from here, choose ministry that leads with the Bible on the front foot. You know, many of us have seen this, haven't we? I think if you saw the story in the Press and Journal this week about the challenges facing many religious organizations, challenges to do with finance, here is an incredible phenomenon. Soft words from the pulpit leads to hard hearts. You know that? Where prophets and preachers say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Soft words from the pulpit leads to hard hearts. Just a thought for the day, five-minute homily, something bland, inoffensive, the same as what everybody else is saying. But we've seen the opposite, haven't we? Hard words from the pulpit lead to soft hearts. That is the number one thing I've seen in ministry over the years. The more you tackle difficult things and tough things and controversial things and bring to bear what God says on them, the more you see soft hearts growing. Sermons on divorce, remarriage, sex, transgender. These are the ones that have had the most interactive interactions with me afterwards. The most thank you for saying what was tough to say. I needed to hear that. I needed to know that. Look how Paul lived. Look what Paul did. Number three. Let me finish with this. Embrace the future Paul knew. Embrace the future Paul Paul knew. Do you know that Christian leaders know what the future holds? Christian leaders know what the future holds. We don't have a crystal ball. But we do know what it will mean to belong to a suffering Savior. And we know what happens to people who belong to a suffering Savior. I want you just to look at verses 22 and 23 and just read them quietly to yourself. Verses 22 and 23. Who does Paul sound like? Where, where have you heard something like this before? You know, many commentators point out that Luke, in writing this, is deliberately mapping the last part of Paul's life onto the last part of the Lord Jesus' life. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. Knowing that affliction and death await him, here is Paul walking in his very footsteps. The last part of Luke is an extended passion narrative. Just like Jesus marched to the cross, Paul is sailing to his death in Rome. Paul is walking in Christ's very footsteps, laying this out for all who follow him. You know how I lived with tears and trials, and I know what will follow imprisonment and afflictions. And right at the heart of this is what Paul says in verse 25. 
And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. I was thinking this week, we don't, we don't know what that's like anymore, do we? What, what have we depended on all the way through in lockdown? FaceTime and Zoom. Amazing tools for all their inadequacy, for all their exhaustion that we find in using them. Amazing tools. We see people's faces right in front of us. Oh, the sweetness of seeing the faces of people we love. And the agony of losing that. So why this pain? Why this journey to Jerusalem? Why will they never see his face again? Because, friends, Paul has work to do with the gospel. That's why he's leaving Ephesus. Not because he had to. Not because he's had enough of them. But because somewhere else has not yet had the gospel or had enough of the gospel. That's it. And so, friends, here is the future Paul is wanting all Christian leaders and all gospel churches to embrace. Not just that suffering might come our way in the abstract, but that suffering might come our way because we choose to lose the personal presence of people we love so that the gospel might go to somewhere it has not yet reached. That's the path Paul is laying out here. That's what he's modeling to these Ephesian elders. I could stay with you. Look how much we love each other. But look at over there where they, they don't know the Lord Jesus. Just look again what all these verbs of leadership are doing. You remember them? Verse 20, 21, declaring, teaching, testifying. Testifying to what? Verse 21, to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, there is nothing more precious, nothing more precious in all the world than to know that Jesus is Lord of everyone and everything and everywhere. And that therefore everyone needs to be turned around to live under his lordship. Everyone, Jews, Greeks, need to repent, need to bow the knee to Jesus as Lord. The people you will rub shoulders with this week, that is what they need to know Christ as King. The grace of God is there for everyone. Do you see how Paul says it? For everyone, male, female, straight, gay, trans, bi, young, old, educated, uneducated. Jesus is in charge of us all and all need to hear of him. All need to know of him. Just this week, uh, I saw the most amazing, beautiful Billy Graham clip. You can find it online if you want, if you want to see it. I sent this to some of you. Some of you have seen this. The most amazing, uh, beautiful clip. My, my youngest daughter was captivated watching this. She got it exactly what he was saying. I'm going to tell you what he says, and you, you need to go and find it because I am not Billy Graham. The moment you hear me say it and then watch Billy Graham say it, you'll see the difference. But here's what he said. Habakkuk said, Lord, please tell me what you're doing. And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk, because if I told you what I'm doing, you would not believe it. If God today told us what he's doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. 
Don't you think God's given up and God's abdicated and God's left the throne? He hasn't. He's still on the throne. And those of us that know him put our trust in him and in him alone. I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put my trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when the rest of it fails and crumbles and shatters, he will be there. Friends, that is all I ever have to tell you. That's all I've got. It's all Christian leadership has. It's all we've got. It's the only thing we've got in the bank. Put your trust in one eternal, unbreakable, unshakable person who will be with you come what may. And today, whatever you've done, if you come to him in repentance and humble faith, faith, there is grace to cover an ocean of sins. Whatever you've done, I want to say to us today, dear Trinity Church family, that most beautiful of message that I pray we will never lose, hold on to tightly, that most beautiful of messages is going to pave a path of pain for us in the future. I want to encourage you to embrace it. Paul embraced it because he was willing to go with the gospel. Are you willing to go? Are we willing to go? We've sent the trainer family to the United States. It's painful. The Allen family here with us who we're just getting to know. Where will they be in the future? It might be painful. Struan here with us. Trainees who we hope God willing will have in the future. You know, you know there, there are folks who come and go from church life all the time. They're here for a few years and then they're gone. And the truth is that their leaving makes little mark. You barely know they've gone. Little dent on a church family because they haven't given themselves to people. And other people give themselves and when they leave it hurts. But it is right that they go. Because the gospel of the Lord Jesus takes them somewhere else, leads them somewhere else. One day, maybe, God willing, here's my prayer. One day we as shepherds will be saying to this congregation, let's plant. Let's put the gospel in another part of our city that doesn't have it. Let's, some of us, move. The building's done. We've done it. We're in. Now let's give. 20, 30 people, people who we will miss more than we can say and more than we think we can afford. But look at that part of the city. There's no gospel witness, no living church. There's no one there testifying to the grace of God. Is it worth it? Is it worth the pain? I just mentioned this uh, generosity project, the house group studies that we're doing at the minute. If you go to the website that's attached to that generosity project, I want to encourage you to do that. Go to their their website. You can look it up online and go to a little section called Real World Stories. They have some amazing videos on there. One of the real world stories is called A Church Planted with Generosity. 
a church planted with generosity, a church in Manchester, gave away more people and more money than they could afford to a new church plant. Uh, there's, there's what it is in all of this. There's all of this at work. There is a church embracing the same future of pain that the Apostle Paul knew. See the description? They gave away more people and more money than they could afford. Five words that define the very essence of Christian giving, of gospel gospel generosity. Five words, more than they could afford. And God provided. God gave. God responded. Friends, where that gospel of grace is alive in a church, that church embraces the same future that Paul knew. One where he does whatever it takes to take the gospel to people who haven't heard it or seen it or ever know the Lord Jesus yet. Friends, if we have a selfless Savior, a selfless Savior, what does it do to the gospel to have selfish sheep? If you have a Savior who gives, what does it do to people's impression of the Savior when you have shepherds who take? May God give us eyes to see the gospel message either falls apart or comes alive in the lives of people who preach it and the people who believe it. It falls apart or it comes alive. So may it be in us, in you, in me. Amen.